Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. My main interview today will be on the May 4th movement, demonstrations that began on this day 100 years ago in Beijing to protest against the terms of the Versailles Treaty. But first, a couple of small chats to highlight two exhibitions that are on at the moment. The first is called Steps Through Time and is in the lobby of the Pottinger Hong Kong at 74 Queens Road Central. But you'll need to be nifty as it finishes tomorrow. The curator of these original rare prints is David Bellis of the Hong Kong history website, guulo.com. The exhibition is a collection of about 30 photos taken from the late 1800s through till about the 1920s. And we've grouped them into three categories. So there's first group takes you a little around the area of the hotel, so uh, Pottinger Street and Queen's Road. The second group looks at some of the people you would have seen because that area was a, a hotbed of photo studios at around that time. It's where people went to have their portraits photographed. And then the last section follows visitors as they went out of the city, so some of the sites they would have seen. Are they the collection of the Pottinger Hotel? Yes, it's part of the Sino Group and the group GM is Nikki Ng. And one of her friends gave her a picture because he saw that the address of the studio was the same as the modern address of the Pottinger Hotel. So that's how it all started. And then since then, she's been slowly building up a, a collection of photos and invited me to come along and see if we could put them together into an exhibition because it's the fifth anniversary has just happened. I mean, what's the? you say that uh, this particular area of Pottinger Street and surrounding was filled with a number of the photo studios. So a number of these photographs, um, I mean, I, I think 19th century resolution is always really good for the most part. So, I mean, are these photos really top quality? Yes, they're, they're good and sharp. Uh, they're sharp enough even that one of them, as I was looking at it on the computer after we'd scanned it, you notice that one of the men was a bit thinning on his hair. And the studio has done a little bit of retouching for him and given him back a full head of hair. So even in those days, like long before Photoshop, you know, they, uh, they weren't averse to making you look a little bit better. So give me a, a, another couple of examples of the photos that we can see. There's several that take you on a little walk through Central in about the 1920s. And these all come from an album produced by Mi Cheung. He was one of the photographers of the day. And they're lovely, lovely and sharp. That's what I like about those. You can just see so much in them. And there's one of them as you come around past Wyndham Street. And, of course, then it was full of flowers. And the, the, the disappointing thing is you can't see the colours of the flowers in an old black and white picture. But luckily, the collection also includes a little album of watercolours that was published. So we get to see the, the, the site in, in its full glory. Are you going to do smell exhibitions next time? <laughs> <laughs> Please don't scratch and sniff. These are valuable photos from the 1920s. <laughs> David Bellis there of the Hong Kong History website, grulo.com, talking about Steps Through Time, which is on show at the Pottinger, Hong Kong, until tomorrow. Trolleys are a common sight in Hong Kong. Large ones, small ones, ones designed to go down narrow alleyways and down steps. Tai Kun, the site of the former Central Police Station complex, has an alleyway exhibition called Trolley Central. I talked to Tai Kun's Head of Heritage, Winnie Yang. Trolley Central is actually one of our very first heritage exhibitions in Tai Kun. The idea is to pick up topics and observations that we found in the community that we think are crucial to the community and also, well, basically reflect the culture of Hong Kong. Of course, trolleys are crucial to Hong Kong. So where did you find all the different models? Ah, uh, our program partner is called Making on Loft. Um, and so for the past few years, they've been studying anything that has to do with wheels. 
and, and how wheels can actually improve people's lives. And so them as our program partner talk to basically trolley makers around Hong Kong and also do a bit of historical research to understand better about how trolleys matter, not just today, but also Hong Kong in the past as well. So, in fact, uh, among the models that you can see at Taekwon, some are, you know, ones that we would recognise from the streets of everyday use, but some are actually showing how some of the trolleys could be modified. Yeah, so the reason why we think that uh, trolleys are particularly uh, important in our neighbourhood is because we're a very busy neighbourhood with both uh, residential and commercial areas as well. And many of our roads are restricted areas, so no parking, no stopping there and quite a lot of step and slope streets. And so the best way for people to do deliveries, actually, uh, for transportation, is through trolleys. And to, to cope with the landscape of this neighborhood, there are uh, trolley makers in the neighborhood that adapt to what uh, their customers actually need. In fact, with the small exhibition that you've got down an alleyway in Taekwon, you actually invite people to design their own trolleys. Yeah, so the, the idea, if you look at all these uh, improved tailor-made trolleys, it's all about, you know, making people's lives better, people's lives easier. And so I'm sure that everyone has some ideas of how and have experience of transporting goods. So maybe they also have some ideas of how to actually improve trolleys, not just for themselves, but for people around them as well. Trolley Central is on show until May the 12th. And on to today's main subject. The May 4th movement, which began in Beijing a century ago, still resonates today. It was in reaction to terms in the Versailles Treaty at the end of the First World War and arguably led to the setting up of the Communist Party in 1921. China analyst and author Mark O'Neill explains to me also the discussions on human rights and rights for women that blossomed from the May 4th movement. Well, what had happened was the war in Europe had just come to an end. The Versailles Conference was underway in France to determine the terms of the end of the war. And China and Japan were put on the same table, which indicates how much the Western world <laughs> understood. And China sent nearly 140,000 workers to fight in World War I. So they, they hadn't fought in the war, but about 3,000 of them had died and they'd made an important contribution to the war effort in France and Belgium. So China's main demand at the Versailles Conference was that the German properties in China, which is in Shandong province, be returned to China. That was China's principal demand, as it were, in exchange for its contribution to the war. And what had happened was, during the war, the Japanese army had invaded these German properties and taken them over. So the Japanese were occupying these cities in Shandong. So the, the issue for... So what, German, so that was basically, as you had a number of countries having various ports, or controlling various ports in China, so this was the sort of German area? Yeah, so this was the German area, but the Japanese had invaded it during World War I, taking it over. So among what was formerly a German area would have been cities that we'd recognise today, like Qingdao. I mean, Qingdao is an important city. It's a big port, it's an industrial city, and it had been developed by the Germans. And China said, this is enemy property, enemy occupation, so give it back to us. So what the victors, that's Britain, France, Italy, and the US, had to decide is whether to give Qingdao and the other properties back to China or allow Japan to keep them. So that was the question. Well, since it's within China, 
Why are these decisions being made in Paris? Well, at that time, foreign countries had many special areas in China. I mean, the foreign concessions. In Shanghai, for example, many countries had concessions. Tianjin was a foreign concession. There were concessions all over the place. But the ones, of course, that belonged to the victorious powers, there was no question about them being returned. It was only because it was Germany. Now, during the war, Japan was an ally of France, Britain and Russia and was invited to send soldiers to fight, but they didn't. But they did send their navy. And in the Mediterranean, the Japanese navy did play a role in escorting other allied ships, keeping off German submarines and warships, and rescuing people who'd been sunk. So she had made a contribution to the war, but not, not a very significant one. So what happened at Versailles was the big four decided Japan is our military ally in Asia. So we're going to favor Japan. We're not going to give Qingdao and the other properties back to China. So yes, because the thing to emphasize, of course, is Japan is not the enemy of the Allied forces in the First World War. Yes, and Japan is the most important military power in Asia. Japan had defeated Tsarist Russia in the Russo-Japanese War. So from the eyes of Britain and France especially, it was an important military power, and we wanted to be our ally in Asia. So they decided that Japan can keep Qingdao and the other German possessions and we're not going to give it back to China. So that was what was written in the final Versailles Treaty. So that was the origin of the May the 4th movement because when this news reached China, students, intellectuals, thinking people were aghast and said this is completely unacceptable and we can't have this. So on May the 4th, 1919, about 3,000 students gathered in Beijing and we're going to have a protest against this, demanding that the government not sign it and that the pro-Japanese members of the Chinese cabinet resign. And we must put this in the historical context that before China had never had such protests, student protests, such a thing didn't exist. It existed in Europe, but it never happened here before. So they marched and they marched from Tiananmen Square to the foreign legation but they couldn't get in there because there were foreign soldiers and Chinese police. So they then walked to other areas and they went to the house of the Minister of Communications and he wasn't there, but they broke in and they set it on fire. They then found another cabinet minister and they beat him up. And then uh, the Chinese police retaliated, arrested uh, some of the students and one student was, was killed. So the students then called for demonstrations by students in other cities which happened in, in several cities in China. They also called for action by workers, and about 60,000 workers in different factories had a sympathy stoppage or a strike. They also called for a boycott of Japanese products, which happened to some extent. So this was the first sort of nationwide political movement that China had ever had. And it was successful in the sense that the government didn't sign the Versailles Treaty, the three pro-Japanese cabinet members were dismissed and the cabinet resigned in recognition of these protests. So when you say nationwide, so how would that news have spread? So radio, newspaper, where, with this sort of public anger at the situation in Versailles? Now this is a very good question because one of the, the many items on the modernization agenda at that time was the language. Because as you know, under the imperial system, Chinese language was written in a very sophisticated and classical form 
And to understand this and to write it, you need years of education. So the vast majority of the population was illiterate, couldn't read this. So the reformers said, we've got to change the Chinese language. We've got to write it in a way that most people can understand. So this is one of the ways they spread the information in, in China. They didn't use this very formal classical Chinese. They used vernacular Chinese. And they, there were magazines and newspapers and pamphlets, and they handed them out. So that's how it spread around China. So a hundred years on, how is the May 4th movement now remembered? Well, this is a very good question because, first of all, it established the precedent that students, especially at Beijing University, can protest. So even after 49, when the communist government took over and, of course, controlled very much any kind of protest by anyone, the students, especially at Beijing University, are given a latitude which is not given to anyone else. So there were various stages during the communist period, 57, 86, 89, where the Beijing University students protested, and it was allowed within a certain pr perimeter. It's, it's not allowed to spread, and it can't, of course, threaten the government, but they're allowed to write posters and give speeches and have a limited amount of demonstrations. But the May the Fourth movement has a much more broader meaning than just the protests that happened that particular day. It's the modernization of China. How should we modernize China? Because the revolution of 1911 was a failure. It got rid of the dynasty, it replaced it with the republic. But the new government that took place was not so much different from the one that existed before. It was not democratic, it was controlled by militarists, and the foreigners had all the privileges and the, and the special treatments that they'd had before. And all over China there were warlords who controlled large areas of China. So. If you were a modernizer, if you were a Chinese student who'd been to America, to Japan, to Europe and been educated and seen what had happened in these countries and you came back to China, you were extremely disappointed. And where is our revolution? What, what, what have we achieved? So the May the Fourth Moon gave way to an intense debate, discussion about what road China should take. How should it reform itself? How should she discard parts of the old China or keep parts of the old China? How much should it adopt what is come from the West, what would be suitable to come from the West? So Beijing University had three very important people who all played a part in this. One was the president called Tsai Yuanpei, one was the dean was called Chen Xiu, and one was the professor of philosophy Hu Shi. So let's talk about the latter two. Now Chen Xiu was a very emotional, radical person. He served three months in prison for his role in the protests, and he became an early convert to communism. And the Communist International in Moscow, they saw this movement as the golden opportunity. So they sent many agents from the Soviet Union to China to propagate their form of communism. So the Communist Party of China was set up in 1921, so this is two years later, and Mr. Chen was one of the early leaders of this. So their view was the Western powers will never accept a democratic China, they'll never treat China fairly, they'll never give up their privileges. What we have to do is a dramatic, radical change as is what has happened in the Soviet Union. We have to overthrow the whole system and replace it with a completely new one. So that was the view of Mr. Chen Xiu and the other communist leaders. Now, Hu Shi had a different approach. 
He was a man who'd been educated in the United States. He was very sophisticated. He was an excellent author. He was also very critical of the state of China at that time. But he felt that a radical extremist path, which Chen Duxiu was advocating, was dangerous and was not correct. And that the reform of China had to be much more gradual and that China could use a lot of things from the West. So in 49, Hu Shu was given the option of staying in the mainland or going to Taiwan, and he chose to go to Taiwan, and he became foreign minister under the ROC government there. So the May 4th movement actually leads, in essence, to a communist China? Well, it led to many things, but one outcome was the Communist Party set up in 1921. But of course, it was not at all clear in 1921 that the communists would take power. I mean, they only took power because of an extraordinary series of events which would happen over the next 28 years. So fair to say that they, they resulted in the Communist Party being established in 1921? Yes, and that the, the as I say, Communist International from the Soviet Union came and spread its message, made many converts among young Chinese people. The party was set up and there was a lot about China which convinced those young people that communism was the best path. But it was not the only one. There were many different streams. And of course, the Nationalist Party under Chiang Kai-shek, that was another stream. So their approach would be we should use parts of traditional China and we should take things from the West and we should make a new China melding both of these. But we don't use the Soviet Union as a model. May 4th movement, I mean, was it a name for, you know, where it started out or, or did it become you know, nationwide, tens of thousands of people? And how much actually happened on May 4th? Or was it a weeks-long developing movement? Or was it more a political idea? So I'm just trying to gauge, were you having outbreaks, protests in a variety of cities throughout China? Well, what happened on that day is what I said at the beginning, just what happened in Beijing, the students march, they burn down the house of the minister, they clash with the police, arrests and one fatality. So then we have, after that, protests by other students in other cities. And then we have, as I say, strikes and sympathy by uh, about 60,000 workers. But of course, China is an enormous country. So what we're speaking about is really major cities. So. Beijing, Tianjin, Shanghai, Guangzhou. In these cities, something would happen. But of course, in the vast hinterland of China, in the rural areas, then nothing happened. But we use this phrase, May the Fourth Movement, to encompass what then happened, this intense debate about all kinds of reforms, what, what roles China should take. And I mean, let's talk about some of the other ones. I mean, what's the role of women? Because, of course, in feudal China, women have an extremely limited role. They have to bind their feet. They have to stay at home. They have to obey their parents and their husband and their sons. They have no rights at all. So as part of this debate, of course, some women stood up and said, we can't have this. We must have the rights which women have in Europe and the United States. And some women's rights activists came from the West and, and gave speeches here and were listened to very keenly. Then, of course, the whole question of human rights. What kind of rights should people have? Should farmers have rights? Should workers have rights? Is everyone the same? This was another debate that they had at the time. And then, why is China so backward? Economically, it's so backward. In science, technology is so backward. Why is this? How do we change this? How can we make China stronger? So the, these are all the matters debated in the events that happened after May the 4th. Do you see it as a, when you, I mean, you're quite, you know, 
done a lot on on China's history and and uh, worked or have been a journalist associated with China since the early 1980s. So when you look at the May 4th movement, is it a time of great change, of excitement? Yeah, it's a time of great excitement because, remember, the government is weak at that time. The government's very decentralised. So we've got the Beijing government and then we have these warlords in all the different places. And as you know, in, in Shanghai, for example, most of Shanghai is controlled by the foreigners. So the Chinese government's writ does not run in the foreign concessions. So it was a very free period compared to what happened in the years afterwards. So yeah, I find it very inspiring and all these people came up and put their ideas forward. There were many new magazines, newspapers were founded. Liu Xun, you know, the famous author, he wrote his best works at this time. Because it was a period of ferment and no one was quite sure what was going to happen. So, I mean, especially for people like us journalists, you know, we, we like that because people talk a lot, debate a lot, discuss a lot of things. And so, yeah, I find it very inspiring period. And who's in charge? I mean, as you say, the, the warlords in, in various areas, and then you've got this, again, the problem of China's geography in, the, in that you've got this remote Beijing government. But Sun Yat-sen had been at the helm of overthrowing the Qing dynasty along with other revolutionaries. Is he still in charge at this point? No, he was only president for three months, you see. And uh, Yuan Shikai, who was the military warlord of Beijing, who had an army, forced Sun Yat-sen to resign, and he then became president. And then he proposed to make himself emperor. So that kind of shows you the, <laughs> the way of thinking of Mr. Yuan Shikai, you know, the revolution of China. But he then contracted a severe disease and died a few months later. So most Chinese see that as the verdict of heaven upon him. So. Yeah, Mr. Sun is still there and he's very active in Guangzhou. This is the center of the Guomindang. So this warlord period ends 1926 when Chiang Kai-shek leads his army from Guangzhou up to Nanjing and he's able to unite many provinces in China, but not all. So they set up a new government in Nanjing 1926. But he doesn't at all control the whole of China and he has to make deals with warlords in different provinces and they will make a deal with him as long as it suits their interests. So they will agree to be under him on the condition that they keep their authority in their particular province or their particular region. So it's a more centralized government than before, but it's not a truly national government. And of course, as we know, the Japanese saw this, so they invaded Manchuria and took over Manchuria and then they invaded other parts of China because they saw that China was weak and decentralized. So yes, you've got this man who designates himself as an emperor and dies shortly afterwards, a, a sign of modern China. <laughs> but also within that time, the Versailles Treaty, I mean, there were so, so many things wrong with it, you know, in terms mm. of, it done in 1919, as you say, mm. sets up the Chinese and the Japanese at the same table, mm. uh, which just shows everything that needs to be known about, mm. about attitudes at that time. But also by Germany, it was very punitive and in some ways, that then generates the anger and ill feeling that, that leads partly at least to 1939. But following on from mm. Versailles then, so do the Japanese then stay in Qingdao in these German properties of Shandong in uh, the formerly German cities? Well, the Japanese intelligence on China, of course, is much better than the intelligence of any other country because they have companies, they have people all over the country. So for them, 
this weak and fragmented China is perfect. It's just what they want. So they make relations with many people in the Chinese political system to make deals in their advantage. They seek lots of economic privileges for Japanese companies and they occupy Manchuria in 1931. And then from then on, they occupy other parts of China. And then in 1937, we have, we have the all-out war. So their aim was to create a friendly, pro-Japanese Chinese government. And they did. I mean, Wang Jingwei set up this government in Nanjing. So we have two Chinese governments. We have the government of Chiang Kai-shek in Chongqing, and then we have the government of Wang Jingwei in Nanjing. So the Japanese strategy was that Chiang Kai-shek would agree that was their thinking. They weren't expecting to have to fight China for all this time. They were thinking that Chiang Kai-shek would realize that the Chinese military was no match for the Japanese military and therefore would make a deal. And the philosophy is that the imperialist powers of the West are against us Asians, so we Asians should work together and oppose them. That was, that was their thinking. And if you were a Chinese and you look at the events since Versailles, that's a very strong argument, because in Versailles nobody helped China. From 1937 onwards, Japan starts attacking China. Who helps China? Do any of the European powers help China? No. The Soviet Union helps it, but the Americans don't help it. So it's hard to say we should follow the West, the West's our friend, the West's our ally, because they don't help. I mean, the Japanese have a kind of logic into thinking they could have no war in China and have a pro-Japanese government. And therefore, Japan could use all its military power to attack Soviet Union or attack Southeast Asia. But it failed. Through the May 4th movement, the then Peking University, now known as Beijing University, has these increased powers of protest within the realms that, that, that you know, the Chinese government approve of, which then in, is shown in, as you say, in the 1950s, then again in 86, and then in 1989, very tragically. Mm. So in terms of May 4th, 100 years on, I mean, how is the communist government, are they going to be marking that this weekend? Yes, but of course in a very constrained way, because they say we are the inheritance of that movement. So the, the movement leads to the founding of the Chinese Communist Party, and then that leads to the overthrow of the Kuomintang government in 1949. We are, the, we are the continuity of that movement, so that's what they say. So that part will be remembered. But the part that there should be outbursts of thinking, discussion, debate about all kinds of movements and what should China be doing, what's the path of modern China, no. Of course, the government today will not allow that because they've decided what the path's going to be. So the liberty given to students now is extremely restricted. In 1919, as you say, you'd had this feudal society that didn't treat women very well, so the May 4th movement also addresses that. You had women who had bound feet, had to obey their fathers, their husbands, their sons. How much do you think that the May 4th movement of 1919 changed that for women in China? Well, not very much. I mean, it changed it in the sense that a small number of people start to discuss this, and educated women, especially ones who'd been uh, abroad, been to Russia, been to United States, Japan, Europe, they would come back and discuss these things. So at least the debate began. But to change society is extremely difficult. And any woman in 1919 in China has to operate within the society that exists at the time. 
And she comes from a family, she comes from a certain community. If she renounces that, leaves her family, leaves her community, well, what's she to live on? Where is she to live? Who is to support her? So it was just right at the beginning of the emancipation of women. So it was only the very early, early stages, but it was, it was a start. What do you think, looking back, I mean, when you've studied the May 4th movement and, mm. and some of these standout politicians of their time, mm. writers, journalists, mm. would you have liked to, have, you know, do you ever feel that it would be fun as a writer today to just go back to that time? Well, I, of course, I like Louis Xun, the, the writer, and I, I like Hu Shi, the professor of philosophy at Beijing University, and he later went to Taiwan and he wrote a lot. So those people I admire very much. So I'd love to be if they were sitting here in the room, and then you could interview them. I think they would give you a, they would <laughs> they would give you a very good interview. My thanks to Mark O'Neill talking there on the origins of the May Fourth Movement 100 years ago. Thanks for listening, and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.